please turn in your copies of God's Word to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. This afternoon we begin the trek down the road towards the end of this sermon series on counter-cultural Christianity. We've dealt with many important topics that are incredibly relevant for us today, especially considering the attacks of our culture against these biblical truths. But as we begin to wrap up this series, I've intentionally uh, saved the two most important doctrines for the last two sermons. Yes, everything that we've considered this far is incredibly important and it's applicable to our lives. But what we will consider this week and next week are of the utmost importance and are literally matters of life and death. So give your attention to the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 20 beginning at verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Thus far the reading of God's Word, let us ask His blessing upon it. O Lord, we are thankful for this Word which Thou hast given us. This difficult word, this challenging word, and yet this word which is uh, mighty to save, this word which is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit and bone and marrow. O Lord, as we approach this uh, weighty topic of a doctrine of hell. Let us do so humble, recognizing with, that without the shedding of Thy Son, Jesus Christ's blood, that this would be our eternal destination. O oh Lord, let us approach this doctrine with a reverence, with an awe, with a godly fear and trembling. Lord, let us take these truths and learn to love Thee more. To learn to love Thy people more. To learn to love the lost and the dying of this world more. O oh Lord, we ask that the preaching would go forth in power and in might, and that it would not be the man that is preached today, nor his opinion, but it would be the Word of Christ. Lord, feed us with Thy Word, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. There is perhaps no other doctrine of the Christian faith so ridiculed, so mocked, so hated as the doctrine of hell. The entire notion of hell has become so trivialized in our society that the overwhelming of majority of people hold it as some antiquated a mythological belief which ought to be done away with. There's no fear of hell anymore. People use hell as a curse word. They tell other people to go to hell. They jokingly say, I'll see you in hell even become somewhat of a popular thing for those in our culture to say that hell is where all the fun people will be. 
They say these things because they don't actually believe in a literal hell. They've trivialized damnation to the point that it is something laughable in their eyes. There is no fear of hell in our culture because there is no fear of God. And honestly, this ought to be expected. Those who do not fear God will not fear His righteous judgment. Unfortunately, as we've seen time and time again though, uh, through the past several weeks, this dismissal of hell that is so prevalent in our culture has begun to seep its way into the church. John Wenham, a noted evangelical Greek and New Testament scholar, stated at a conference in 1991, I believe that endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries and a blot on her presentation of the Gospel. I would indeed be happy if before I die, I could help in sweeping it away, period. This is an evangelical scholar. Far too many in the church view the doctrine of hell in this way, that it is a stain on the face of the church, and that it is a hindrance to the spreading of the Gospel. But friends, without a doctrine of hell, there is no Gospel. There is no salvation without which you must be saved from. We as a people must recover a right understanding of a doctrine of hell. And so this afternoon, we will attempt to do just that. It's impossible for us to exhaustively cover this doctrine in one sermon, but it's necessary that we hear from the Word of God the essential nature of this truth and the realities of hell. So this afternoon we'll take up this truth that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. And we will consider this uh, uh, theme by looking at uh, each aspect of this truth. First, we must consider that hell is a place. The popular notion within society is that hell is a state of mind or it's... it's, uh, it's it's, it's something that is experienced in this life. A state of being that's experienced in this life. How many times have you heard someone say things like they've been through hell? That it was a hellacious week. That life is a living hell. Or that war is hell. This shows such a low view of hell and such a grave misunderstanding of what hell is. So many think that hell is something that we all go through in this life. And if you're a worse person than someone else, then your life will be worse and you'll experience hell more than someone else. Friends, just a simple look at the reality of life will tell you that this misunderstanding of hell is absolutely absurd. Think of how many wicked people in this world live lives uh, which are seemingly full of vibrancy and success while those good people suffer some of the worst tragedies And they live in some of the worst circumstances. If that's what hell is, then there is a great injustice that is taking place. 
but most people recognize the absurdity of this claim. They don't actually hold to it as a belief, but instead promote it as a means to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's a platitude. They don't actually believe it. In fact, most who would use this type of language to speak of life in its present state don't believe in any kind of truth whatsoever. They deny the existence of God and they scoff at His standard for truth and justice. They deny that there is anything after this life, that there is a time of judgment or that there is a reward for the righteous and a punishment for the wicked. They deny all of this because they are a God unto themselves and they have made their own imagination the truth that they hold to. But friends, all of that is in vain. There will come a day when they will quickly come to realize that their notion of hell was false because they will find out what that hell truly is a place. In Matthew 25.30, Christ Jesus says, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place in which men will be cast. It's a place of outer darkness removed from the shining light of the radiance of God. In Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, Christ says, The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all the things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. To be cast into something. That something must be a place. Can't be cast into something that doesn't exist. Here hell is described as a furnace. A place in which one will be cast and from which there is no escape. Matthew 18 and verses 8 and 9 says, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Mark 9, and verses 43-48 through 48, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. For it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to, into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is quenched not. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. The list goes on and on and on, for time and time again, hell is spoken of as a place in which one is cast into. Perhaps the most conclusive account in Scripture given of hell uh, which is uh, found in Luke 16 and verses 20 to 31, is the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Here we see that the rich man upon his death was in hell. He was not experiencing hell in his life. In fact, if you look at the brief account of his life that's given in Scripture, 
it seems as though he had a pretty good one. But upon his death, he was cast into hell. No longer on the earth, he found himself in a new place, in a strange place, in a terrible place. And he refers to hell as a place in verses 27 and 28. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Friends, hell is not a state of mind. No state of consciousness. No experience of this life. Hell is a real place which will be the destination for many at the end of this life. There is no escaping this reality. No matter how much reasoning within yourself you do, you can never rationalize away the fact that hell exists and that it is a real place. There are souls in hell at this very second. It is the place of the dead. The place of the damned. Just as heaven is a real place, so is hell. Now it's interesting that many more people accept the reality of a place called heaven after this life than they do a place called hell. You cannot have one and not the other. You can deny the reality of hell all you want, but if you do, the day will come when you will be cast into the place of outer darkness, the place which is a furnace, the place of the dead, a place called hell. So hell is a place. And it's a place of eternal conscious torment. This is where we'll spend most of our time. It's necessary that we consider what each of these descriptors mean and prove them from Scripture because this is the doctrine of hell that is being... Uh, that, 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 that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. It is this that is so despised by the world and by some even within the church as we saw earlier. So hell is eternal. There's no end to it. No reprieve will be found for those in the pit of hell. This is the plain teaching of Scripture. Matthew 18.8 Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee, for it is better for thee to enter into the life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Hell is described as everlasting. And this is the same word that is used in John 3.16 to speak of everlasting life. Just as the life which those who are in Christ will enjoy in heaven is everlasting, so is the punishment which the damned will suffer in hell. Mark 9.43 And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. The fire is never quenched, meaning that there will never be an end to it. Revelation 14.11 says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name continues forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night. This is the reality of hell that it 
is eternal. That's something that we cannot even fathom because we have no mental concept of what eternality truly is. We know what it means uh, that, that it has no end. But in our limited minds, we cannot grasp exactly what that's like. We speak of things that take a long time as, as taking an eternity. But that's not what hell's like. The soul in hell will be no closer to the end of his punishment after a hundred billion years than he was on the day that he was cast into the pit. There will be no end. The soul in hell would cry out pleading for His punishment to only be a hundred billion years because that would mean that there would be an end in sight. But that's not what the soul in hell experiences because it will never end. It goes on and on forever. And this is a point at which many object to the doctrine of hell because they say that eternal punishment is too much. That's why all sorts of blasphemous doctrines have been devised to do away with the eternality of hell. The papists have come up with their doctrine of purgatory. That lesser sins can be purged over time so as to purify the soul to enter into glory. Annihilationists have denied the eternality of hell by coming up with what they view as a more merciful option that after a period of time in hell, the soul just ceases to exist. But friends, to think that eternity in hell is too great of a punishment for sin committed against the Lord of glory is to show how little we think of sin and the holiness of God. Ted Donnelly writes, sin is so serious because it is against God that it is directed and the gravity of the offense depends on the dignity of the one against whom it is committed. Any sin committed against Jehovah is an act of cosmic treason against the sovereign of all creation and is worthy of eternal punishment because the crime committed was against the eternal God. If we truly understood the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God, then we would not dare speak against the eternality of punishment in hell. And that eternal punishment, uh, and in that eternal punishment, the soul is conscience. There's no such thing as soul sleep where the souls of men who die sleep until the end, uh, to the day of judgment. No, the scriptures teach that upon death, the souls of men either enter into glory or into damnation. And we see this clearly in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man in hell is conscious of his state. He's experiencing sensations that are only possible for those who are conscious. Verse 24, And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He recognizes Abraham and Lazarus. He's conscious to the fact that he is removed from the blessed state that Lazarus is in. The soul knows exactly what is going on. It's able to sense and to see and to speak and to feel. There will not be a second that goes by in which the soul in hell is not intimately aware of what is happening. 
And if you die in your sins and enter into the pit of hell, then you will be conscious for these things as well. This passage is not simply a parable which teaches us some moral truth. We're given in this account of the rich man and Lazarus a true glimpse into the state of man in hell. This will be you if you are one who is cast into outer darkness. You will be aware of the great gulf which separates the redeemed and the damned. You will be aware of the desperate state that you are in just as the rich man recognized that even a drop of water would find refreshment. You will be aware of those whom you have left behind, those whom you love, those whom, who cared about you and loved you. You'll be aware of every single sin that brought you to that wretched place and you'll be aware of the wrath of God that it is being poured out upon you. Oh, what a reprieve it would be to have just a moment of not being aware of the horrors of hell. But friend, that will never happen. The soul in hell is conscious and it will be so for all eternity. And the soul in hell will be eternally and consciously tormented. The punishment for sin and hell is torment. The Word of God makes this clear in every description that is made of hell. Four times in the twelve verses of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the word torment is used. Why is that so? It's because Christ is emphasizing the fact that hell is torment. Hell is a place of torment. The worldly notion that hell will be where you go and spend eternity with your buddies doing whatever you want with no consequences is found nowhere in Scripture. The idea that hell is just a place of unpleasantness where some red-suited devil with a pitchfork bothers you on occasion is one of the Looney Tunes and not of the Bible. Hell is a place of torment. It's impossible to read the Word of God and come away saying that there is no torment in hell. And even in the intermediate state when the soul is separated from the body, in that time after death but prior to the resurrection, there is a sense in which the soul can feel torment. And this torment in hell is contrasted with the comforts of heaven. And in hell he lifted he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus receive, uh, Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. The soul that is in heaven experiences blessedness and joy and comfort forever and ever, while the soul that is in hell experiences suffering and pain and torment forever and ever. Hell is described as a place of fire. Luke 16.24 And He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Matthew 13.42 And shall cast them into a furnace of fire 
there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 18, 8 and 9, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. Mark four, four uh, Mark Mark nine forty nine. For every one shall be salted with fire. Revelation 14.10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Revelation 20.14-15, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8 But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Even the Old Testament proclaims this in Isaiah 33.14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearless hath surprised, uh, fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? There is nothing more painful than the experience of a burn. Spend five minutes in the burn unit at the hospital and you'll see the immense torment that those who have suffered the effects of fire are experiencing. Maybe you remember on 9-11 when the Twin Towers were burning and there were people literally jumping out of buildings from hundreds of feet up because the quick death of the fall was preferable to the fiery death of the burning building. Flames of hell are a torment to those who are there. And the flames that are experienced in this life cannot even be compared to the flames of hell. The flames of hell will never cease. Meaning that the torment from the flames will continue forever. But how can a soul feel the pains and the torment of fire because what's spoken of here is not physical fire, but is instead the fire of the righteous indignation of God poured out upon the soul. Hebrews 12.29 For our God is a consuming fire. The torment of hell is not the complete absence of God as some people say that it is. No, there are many people who would love nothing more than to be away from God for all eternity. But God is omnipresent. And He does not cease to be present even in the depths of hell. God is there just as He is everywhere in all creation. The difference is that God is there in the fullness of His wrath and justice. Yes, there is a great gulf which separates the redeemed from the damned. It is a gulf so great that no man could ever cross it. But God is no man. And He is ever present in the torments of hell. The cup of wrath which the Lord Jesus Christ drank to the bitter dregs in His death upon the cross is the very same cup of wrath which is poured out upon the soul in hell. 
This is the fiery torment. The soul in hell is like an unholy counterpart to the bush which burned and was yet not consumed. Because the man in hell will be burned by the torments of hellfire for all eternity and yet will not be consumed. And even after the resurrection where the soul is reunited with the body, the man in hell will still not be consumed because the Lord will be the one there continually sustaining His body so that it feels the torment of hell for all eternity. Hell is not the absence of God. It is the full presence of His righteous fury. The torments of hell are also described as wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13.42 And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25.30 And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wails and the weeping of the soul in hell will be the, the reward for the life lived apart from Christ. There will be no drop of water on the tongue as the rich man begged for, but instead his tears will be his food day and night. Archibald Alexander writes, as hope alleviates every kind of misery, so despair is the ingredient in the cup of suffering which renders it so exceedingly grievous that none can exercise any patience, but all are found weeping, wailing, and gnashing their teeth. Dismal indeed must be the prospect which is alleviated by no ray of hope, but presents the blackness of darkness forever. And ever. The pain and the torment that they experience will be so great that the teeth will be gnashed, ground together in an attempt to alleviate the horrors that are being suffered, and yet no alleviation will be found. The image that Scripture gives is that of inconsolable anguish. One which causes the man in hell to writhe about like a madman. And of this there is no end. And added to this is the statement that hell is a place where the worm dieth not. Mark 9.44 This is not a physical worm eating the flesh of those who are in hell, but instead it's something personal that eats away at them spiritually. It's their own conscious, uh, their own conscience. We speak of our consciences uh, eating at us. And that's the picture for what awaits those who are cast in hell. It is their worm their personal conscience that adds to their eternal torment. If you die in your sins and you are cast into the furnace of hell, then you will not escape the guiltiness of your sins which, brought, uh, which ought to plague you even in this life. No, you will be reminded each and every, uh, each and every time of each and every instance of sin. You will be reminded of every sin that you've ever committed and eat, it will eat at you. And more and more, you will increase in your hatred for God as you are confronted with your sins. And each and every time you will continue to sin more and more, heaping even greater judgment upon yourself so that the worm dieth not. 
the man in hell is worse off and judged even greater as eternity goes on because his sin continues to increase. This is the torment that awaits any who are cast into hell. And who is this torment for? Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. It is sin which condemns people to hell. Revelation 21.8 says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Almost everyone would agree that the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world deserve to be punished with such a torment. There are even professing atheists who have said that they hope that Hitler is burning in hell because a cyanide capsule and a bullet to the head was not justice for what he did. But friends, it's not just the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world who will face the torments of hell. Everyone who dies in their sins, who dies without being united to Christ, will be cast into the fires of hell. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9 teaches that it is those who obey not the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who in flaming fire will be punished with everlasting destruction. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not uh, the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Nahum chapter 1 and verses 2 and 6. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries and He reserveth wrath for His enemies. Who can stand before His indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by Him. Friends, this is everyone apart from Christ because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 And the wages of sin is death. This is what every single person who has ever lived, is living, or will live. It's what we all deserve apart from Christ. And so it's not just the Hitlers and the Stalins, the murders and the child molesters who will experience the torments of hell. It's the businessmen. It's the school teachers. It's the Girl Scouts. It's the Boy Scouts. Men. Women. Children. Everyone. If they die in their sins, they will experience hell. And this means you too. If you were to die in your sins apart from Christ Jesus, you will experience the eternal conscious torment of hell. In fact, the punishment for you will be worse than for those who have never heard the Gospel. Because you were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made of partakers of the Holy Ghost and tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come. There is no excuse to be found for you. Donnelly makes a remark which ought to cause every one of you to tremble. The deepest pits of hell may well be reserved not for the notoriously wicked, but for those who from childhood were familiar with the message of salvation, yet never embraced it for themselves.
So commune with your own heart and search it diligently. Examine yourselves. Is your sin repulsive to you? Do you hate it and long to see it removed? Is Christ precious to you? Do you take pleasure in Him and Him alone? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Is your desire to have your heart filled with the love of God and have Him reign within you? If that's not what you desire, then I fear that you are in dangers of the fires of hell. Turn to Christ today. Repent and believe the Gospel. You may not be guaranteed tomorrow. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, I know that I've gone long in this sermon, but as I said at the beginning, this is one of the most important sermons that you will ever hear. The world is trying to destroy the doctrine of hell to make it seem as though it were not real. Do not believe the lies of the devil. If we lose hell, we will eventually lose the cross because if there is no hell, then there's no real point in Jesus. Jesus didn't need to come and and make uh, and be made a curse for sin. He didn't need to enter into the horror of, of forsakenness. The cross and, he- and hell stand together. Without hell, Christ is unnecessary. Hell is extreme because sin is extreme. And because extreme measures were taken for your salvation. We cannot survey the wondrous cross, meditate on what the Savior suffered, and then assert that hell is an inappropriate punishment for sin. Hell is real. And there are millions of people who are on the path which leads to destruction. Let this doctrine drive you to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. And let it instill within you a greater love for Christ who snatched you up when you were heading towards destruction. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee. We are humbled by our sins. Broken over the fact that we continue to commit cosmic treason against Thee. O Lord, we are unworthy of the salvation which we have been given. We deserve the fires of hell. We deserve the pain and the anguish, the torment for all eternity. But Thou hast demonstrated Thy love towards us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What an incredible thing. Oh Lord, we thank Thee for our salvation. That Thou hast snatched us from the path of destruction. That Thou hast saved us as we walked upon that thin and brittle Uh, veil 
of life, which if broken, descends into the pit. Thou hast taken us and set us upon the solid rock of Christ Jesus. O oh Lord, we would never be able to deserve such a great and glorious salvation. Lord, let us stand against the attacks of the evil one who seeks to cast doubt upon the hearts of Christians of the truthfulness of this doctrine. There are enemies everywhere, within and without. We must stand firm against all attacks. And let us go out into the world and proclaim Christ Jesus to these people who are on the road that leads to destruction. If hell is real, and it's a place of eternal conscious torment, and it's sin which leads people to hell, and Christ Jesus is the Savior, then we must go to the sinners and preach unto them Christ Jesus and compel them to come unto Him. O Lord, let us use this doctrine to ignite a flame under us to be about the work of proclaiming the Gospel to this hell-bent generation. O Lord, we ask Thy blessing would be upon us as we now prepare to depart from here. Bless the remainder of our week and let us seek to live for Thy glory. We ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.